Hello? Anybody home? Today, I want you to open your mind. I've almost come to the conclusion that the story is so damning that the mass of people can't deal with it. We are in process of developing a whole series of techniques to get people actually to love their servitude. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose and insidious in method. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence. To change the minds and the attitudes and the beliefs of the people of the world, especially the United States, to bring about one world socialist totalitarian government. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. Brutes have risen to power, but they lie. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. If you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, then you have a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices, to be found only in the minds of men. As you connect the dots between different people, organizations, places, religions, history, suddenly the picture starts to form. If you don't connect the dots, it's just a mass of what's all this about. The kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Someone born in the United States is not more special than someone born in Mexico. Someone who is white is not more special than someone who is black. They're just vehicles for the consciousness to experience. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. They do not want your children to be educated. They do not want you to think too much. It was learned that the aliens had been and were then manipulating masses of people through secret societies, witchcraft, magic, the occult, and religion. They reach into our children in music, television, books. Prey on children's innocence. How can I disprove lies that are stamped with an official seal? So if you have the opportunity to stand next to one of these machines, it feels like an altar to an alien god. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a kid that's found his dad's gun. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc is now in the possession of the Army. Too many others know what's happening out there, and no one, no government agency has jurisdiction over the truth. Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man. That state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. It's about time some of you got acquainted with the real hard truth. It's the heart that says, I will not acquiesce. Across the gulf of space, intellects, vast and cool and unsympathetic, regarded our planet with each of us, when separated, is always looking for our other half. And the desire and the pursuit of the whole is called love. Heart perception will change everything. Freedom is the privilege to be right. Freedom from the disasters of our mistakes.
broadcasting from the Sonoran Desert. I'm your host, Ryan Gable, and you are listening to The Secret Teachings Radio. If you'd like to contact the show, email rdgable, rdgable at yahoo.com or tstradio at protonmail.com. Our website is www.thesecretteachings.info. I encourage you all to go to the website and check out all of our shows, our free archive, my books, and more. That's www.thesecretteachings.info. Of course, if you'd like to become a subscriber to get access to the ad-free show, plus montages and my digital books, you can do that at aftermath.media. You can get the premium subscription or the basic subscription, or you can renew your subscription with The Secret Teachings, again, on our website, www.thesecretteachings.info. Last night, we looked through the gates of Arcturus, the opening of the gates of Arcturus. Last year, 2022, the rise of the tiger. We looked at the bear and the symbol of the bear, a symbol of health. We looked at Apollo, with that Apollo theater collapse in Illinois last week. The significance of Apollo, his son Asclepius, and the new COVID-19 variant, which is called Arcturus, and how all of this in contemporary times relates to very ancient and near-ancient mythologies and archetypes. And it doesn't have to be something that's planned out that a storm took the roof off of the Apollo Theater and collapsed it, killing people. But it is a strange, synchronistic type of a thing when you look at uh, in the mythology and find that Apollo and Asclepius were both struck down by Zeus who is the god of storms like Yahweh. And we found all these incredible parallels last night to a story that just otherwise seems like it would get, you know, very little attention. Uh, You know, it goes viral, you know, whatever the breaking news story is when that happened on the 31st. And we just got to cover it last night. But this is the kind of thing that fascinates me. I like to look through current events. I like to look through historical events as well, of course, But I like to apply the lens uh, or the perspective of the secret teachings, and I mean that as as a general thing, to whatever the news story is. And tonight I found a news story that I thought was really interesting. I don't really think it's heavy and weightful like what we discussed last night. It's from the Guardian newspaper, and it's about plants. It says, plants emit ultrasonic sounds in rapid bursts when they are stressed. Now, people have argued this for a very long time, just kind of intuitively, that plants probably are able to feel certain things. I believe I even mentioned it last night on the show in Rosicrucianism and in a lot of other traditional esoteric uh, belief systems. I think in theosophy as well, there's the idea of these different levels or spheres, uh, or you could call them call them levels, call them spears, call them dimensions, call them whatever you want to call them, uh, of consciousness, right? So you have elemental consciousness, mineral consciousness, plant consciousness, animal consciousness, human consciousness, and then demigod and god consciousness. And everybody can sort of tap into the animal consciousness, maybe even your plant consciousness. I mean, look at your central nervous system. It's very plant-like. And some can tap into demigod consciousness, 
I mean, if you compare the average person who hasn't done much with their life with uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci seems kind of like a demigod in comparison. All the things he invented and wrote and depicted, etc. Uh, people like Manley Hall, who published The Secret Teachings of All Ages at 24 years old. Uh, he seems like a demigod. Uh, we're tapping into those other spheres, those other layers, those other levels of, of consciousness. And plants, although they are lower consciously than even animals, and of course humans, who's to say that plants are not aware and conscious, just a different form of consciousness? The, the best way to describe it is like a horse. A horse is conscious, but is a horse conscious enough to make decisions that what we would consider to be you know, human consciousness that are, that are more akin to human consciousness? Do, do animals always try to get out of the rain, for example? Are they aware that it is raining? Are they aware that they're getting wet? Do they desire to get out of the rain? Or are they more in harmony with nature and the rain is part of it and they don't mind getting wet? These are all... Philosophical things to debate. This article from The Guardian says scientists have detected ultrasonic popping sounds from plants when they are deprived of water. And you can listen to the the audio of this if you go to the website. I'll play it here for you in a little bit. Uh, the popping sounds uh, of these these plants when they're deprived of water, or you might remember the. Uh, that uh, kind of, I guess you could say it's kind of a, a famous uh, episode if you watch the Mythbusters, uh, where they played these different types of, of music for plants and tried to see if, you know, rock music or like really you know, heavy metal stuff as opposed to classical music and then yelling at the plants, kind of like Masaru Emoto's work uh, about the, the love versus the hate and seeing how that affects water. And when you freeze water, the designs that come out of it uh, the love is very beautiful. It's very geometrical. It's very harmonious. But the hate, uh, uh, you know, the, the label of hate on the bottle of water or the, the container of water, rather, uh, it comes out more of like a blob. And since we're comprised of uh, so much water, both our planet and our bodies, you have to imagine that, well, the body, as well as the planet, responds to these kinds of things, uh, love and hate, uh, the two uh, extremes as they are perceived. So it's, it's fascinating that there's more research on this because it, it, in, it, it does a lot of things. First of all, it confirms that plants have a level of uh, consciousness. And that level of consciousness is definitely something different than our consciousness. But they are alive and they are, I mean, obviously plants are alive, but they are alive and they are feeling. And uh, I briefly, briefly, briefly touched on this on a recent episode. It's sort of a a pet peeve of mine, uh, but it's the idea that, like, for example, veganism. Uh, I'm technically a vegan, but I'm not really a vegan. I guess I am and I'm not. At the same time, it's kind of complicated. But I, uh, you know, I think about veganism and I think about, because I don't eat animal products, and a lot of people that are opposed to veganism, they say, well, plants are alive too. You're eating the plants. And uh, the common response I give is that, well, if you choose to eat meat because plants can feel as well, that's okay. It doesn't really bother me. It's okay with me as long as you don't do it in my face. But uh, you have to feed those animals a lot of plants. So if you stop eating the animals and you shift to the plants, then obviously you're saving the animals and the plants. There's another philosophical 
kind of a debate, but it's based on this idea that plants are able to feel things. And uh, I mean, obviously they're, they're feeling things that, uh, you know, they, they need water, right? So they're actually emitting these ultrasonic popping sounds uh, that are, you know, re recordable. You can record them, uh, you can hear them, and uh, it's one of those things that's kind of, uh, it's, it's a mysterious and powerful thing, I think, because it shows you that even if you go to a place like here in Tucson, Arizona, and the impression that most people have of the desert is that there's absolutely no life whatsoever. You know, maybe there's like a coyote running around or maybe there's, uh, you know, a tarantula or there's a rattlesnake, right? Or maybe there's a roadrunner. But every time it rains here in the desert, uh, it's rained a lot more this year. Uh, it's rained a lot more. It's actually snowed here. It's been way colder, way longer. And as a result of this, if you go out into the, the western Saguaro National Forest, just a little bit uh, past where I live here in West Tucson, you can find that it is... I mean, I actually went out there and camped this weekend and I had a, I had a severe allergy attack from all the pollen because there's so many things that are that are blooming. There's so many things that are coming to life. So you get this kind of brown uh, orange landscape, these big green saguaro cactuses. But then you get all these other plants, the acutillo and other things that are blooming. And you see these purple and yellow flowers and uh, the creosote, I think, has little little blooms on it, and uh, I mean, I don't know if you could tell my my nose is kind of stuffed up from all the pollen, but the point is, there's there's so much life out there. That's just plant life, not to mention insects, not to mention uh, other kinds of animals and creatures. There's so much life there, and it's that mystery of life, that mystery of the universe. Uh, these are the kinds of things that should make us think that there are uh, countless, endless forms of life. We can just, we can infer from our own experiences here on Earth. You can go to certain parts of the planet that are pretty desolate. There's no human life. There's other kinds of life there. Soil life, there's animal life, etc. In the remote wilderness. And if you landed a probe there and you only, you know, up in, I don't know, the Arctic or down in the, in the rainforest or something, you land a probe there from another planet, you look around, you think, well, the whole planet's, you know, rainforest, the whole planet's, you know, this or the whole planet's that. Or you're more likely if you just launch a random probe to land in the ocean and to think the whole planet's a water planet, depending on how sophisticated, I guess, your your uh, scientific achievements or advancements are. If it's just a basic probe, you just kind of get this idea that the whole planet is either desert or water or whatever. Uh, we can infer from our own experiences that there's so much life on planet Earth, there has to be some kind of life. And there is some kind of life elsewhere in our solar system, let alone the universe. And I th personally, I think the whole idea of uh, the flat earth, kind of a separate thing, but the whole idea of the flat earth, whole idea of, uh, you know, space isn't real. And there are certainly many aspects of, of the space discussion that are totally fictitious and fabricated from NASA. There's no doubt about that in the mainstream press and even alternative media as well. All these fake UFO sightings every day that just really get on my nerves. But the idea that we are just confined to a, to a flat plane, there's nothing beyond. It's a very, very atheistic, anarchist, and kind of demonic mindset. Uh, it really restricts the creative potentiality of nature, the universe, God, call it whatever you choose to call it. So, I, I mean, I, I think that life is everywhere and in and around and outside of everything. And the simple fact that you can go into uh, places that you know very well, like a forest, 
You can go into your backyard even, and you can look at the plants there, and you can see that these these plants, if they don't have water, they obviously start to wilt or they get too much sun, but they also emit a popping noise that is literally recordable. You can, you can hear it. I'm going to play that for you now. When they're out of water or when they're stressed, uh, plants emit chemicals. That's, that's well known. And we've known that plants make sounds, but now scientists have been able to determine this once again. And this is what they've recorded. So it might not sound like much. <laughs> it might just sound like nothing really significant. But it is the, the power, but it is the power uh, of nature. It is the power of life. And these plants are very, very, very much alive. And uh, I think that we, we probably take plants and uh, a lot of other things in nature for granted. We don't really think about them. We don't really consider them. But they also have feelings. They also have maybe not our kind of emotions, but uh, they have some kind of feelings, emotions. They uh, are stressed and, and worried and they uh, release chemicals and they, have, they, they make this popping sound. And these are really, I think these are really cool things, uh, you know, especially if you're, if you're uh, trying to teach your kids about nature or something. Uh, plants aren't just there. Uh, they're not just blowing in the wind. Uh, they're also very much alive, like an animal. And I find that really fascinating. Let's take a look at this article in a little more detail. It says, thirsty or damaged plants produce up to 50 staccato pops in an hour which nearby creatures may respond to. There comes a time in a plant's life when the head sags, the leaves go pale, and the body releases a barrage of sounds that are the ultrasonic equivalent of stamping on bubble wrap, which is, again, what you just heard. While any gardener is familiar with the wilting and discoloration that comes with drought, a shortage of water or a sudden wound can also prompt plants to produce staccato pops, which nearby creatures may respond to. The discovery is described as exciting and thought-provoking. And normally I don't particularly like the mainline, this is science kind of news story. Uh, it is exciting and it is thought-provoking, especially in an esoteric sense. Because as the article says, the plant kingdom is not as silent as it seems. And the ultrasonic sound emitted from the plants might even help shape their ecosystems. We don't know as much as we think we know. We think we've got it all figured out. We've categorized, we've cataloged plants and trees and flowers and vegetables and fruits and everything in between. We've named them. We've put them in books. We talk about them. We eat them. But do we really know much more about these things? And this isn't just a discussion on plants here in the first segment. This this goes for animals. This goes for even minerals, uh, uh, just the basic elements, uh, the memory of water, uh, the the power and the fluidity of fire, uh, the feeling you get in a in a nice cool breeze in the air, uh, the feeling you get with grounding with the earth when you take your shoes off and just put your feet on the ground, or when you grab soil or you lay on the ground, you feel the sun hitting you. I mean, th th there is a lot of powerful uh, spiritual and energetic things that we're interacting with all the time. The whole world, the whole world and everything beyond and within is filled with life. And, uh, you know, it, it, that's what boggles my mind when people say or people imply that 
there's no purpose to life. Uh, you know, the purpose might not be what you in, might you know want want to interpret it to be, like some grander design. Perhaps the grand design is simplicity. Perhaps the simplicity of the grand design is something as simple as you get up every morning, you interact with things. That's 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 the the goal of life to interact, to grow, and to experience, etc. And so I'm just totally astonished all the time when you know we just we step on a plant and don't give it any other consideration. We just walk past uh, abundance of life every day. And then we arrogantly, some of us, act as if we are the most aware and intelligent creatures. And this is not an anti-human rant for, for, for that matter. I'm just, I'm just saying some people, a lot of us culturally, we tend to ignore nature. We tend, and when I say nature, I mean plants, animals. I mean just you know the sun, the moon, all this. Uh, we tend to ignore those things. And uh, you know we're always looking for life from somewhere else, from the stars or from another dimension. We're always looking for aliens. I'm always looking for aliens. I'm with you. But there's just as much incredible uh, life and energy and consciousness just out your window. If you have plants in the house, just in that vase, uh, it's all around us all the time. Uh, these popping sounds are 40 to 80 kilohertz, a little too high, um, pitched for human ears so they've you know they've adjusted this so you can hear it they've recorded this with little microphones reportedly insects like moths and small mammals like mice can detect these frequencies uh, raising the prospect that the noise might influence their behavior writing in cell c-e-l-l which is the journal the scientists describe how the plant's sounds are as loud as human speech and are emitted more frequently after two days without water the pop peak at day five or six, uh, the pops peak at day five or six, and then subside as the plant dries up. On recording the sounds, the researchers trained an artificial intelligence algorithm to identify the plant and the cause of its stress from the popping noise alone. Obviously, it's not 100% accurate, but demonstrates that the sounds contain information that might be useful to organisms in the environment because they're trying to communicate. Of course they are. And this is something that, you know, an occultist would have told you, uh, you know, two, three hundred, four hundred years ago. Uh, you know, some of the smartest people throughout history, we just, we can infer, we know by looking at what is below that there is the same above and vice versa. What is above is also below. And that doesn't mean heaven and earth. That means what is above us in terms of consciousness, and what is below us in terms of consciousness. There is consciousness in humans. There must be some kind of consciousness in plants and animals and minerals and elements for that matter. And if there are some of us who seem to be more conscious, more connected to source, it means that we have the potentiality to reach that level of consciousness. And that's all a really very positive and, uh, I'd say, beautiful thing. Uh, there's also something really fascinating that I would highly, highly, highly doubt that uh, anybody has uh, has ever heard before. I, I've never heard this unless you've read very specific books about plants and about the behavior of plants, unless you're like a botanist or something. You've probably never heard of the work of Sir uh, J- uh, Jagadis Chunder Bose. Uh, Jagadis Chunder Bose, he lived in the mid 
1800s. He's born in the mid 1800s, 1858. He died in 1937. He identified because he was studying plants intensely to uh, prove that they generate action potentials like animals uh, or the nerves of animals. And he was right. He located pulsating cells in a plant stem, which he showed are responsible for pumping the sap through the through basically like the plant's veins, uh, which have special electrical properties. And he built what is called a magnetic, and I don't know how to pronounce this word, syphigomograph, uh, syphigomograph. Uh, that magnified the pulsations 10 million times and measured changes in sap pressure. He did a lot more than just that, though. He basically found the nerves in plants, uh, and he demonstrated the effects of electricity and radio waves on them, and he obtained similar results with, uh, with uh, nerves of frogs. He was, interact- he was using electricity to, to experiment with the nerves of animals and with plants. He made contributions in the field of solid-state physics. He's credited with the invention of a device called a coherer, that was used to decode the first wireless message sent across the Atlantic Ocean by Marconi, one of the inventors of the radio. Uh, he also gave, this is really interesting because we know about Tesla, but probably not about Bose. Uh, he had a, a public demonstration of a wireless transmission in a, in a lecture hall in Calcutta in 1895. That was more than a year before Marconi's first demonstration on Salisbury Plain in England. So this guy was doing what Marconi was doing before Marconi was doing it. This guy was doing what Tesla was doing when Tesla was doing it. Sir Jagadis Chunder Bose. And his work focused on basically electrifying plants, uh, testing out their their nervous system, and uh, seeing how they would respond and how they would react. A really good book that has a chapter on this and a lot more is called The Invisible Rainbow, A History of Electricity and Life by Arthur Furstenberg, that's first, F-I-R-S-T. That is a relatively newer book. And uh, if you get that book and you read that book, I don't make money off of promoting it. If you get that book and you read that book, you're going to have a lot of questions about plants and you're going to have a lot of questions about the nature of disease uh, because they talk a lot about influenza, which is the influence of the stars, uh, something we've discussed here in the secret teachings before. So what does all this mean? Plants are alive in ways that we might not have ever thought. For those of you who are well-versed on such matters, you already knew that plants responded to sound. They respond to, obviously, a lack of things they need to grow and be and be maintained, uh, to, fru- to fruit, to multiply, whatever the case is. But this means that there's life in everything. And uh, I've always sort of had the view that... Um, there is life in even inanimate objects. Uh, and they, we, we basically, when we interact with an object, a, a car, a phone, it becomes an extension of us. We put so much energy into these things that sometimes when we try to let them go, maybe they don't want to go. Maybe something strange happens that forces us to keep that car or keep that phone because they have a life of their own. They have a spirit. And we're going to talk about that spirit we come back from break. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. There's a lot more after this. Please go to our website at thesecretteachings.info. Please subscribe at aftermath.media. Please grab a copy of one of my books like Occult Arcana or Liberty Shrugged, my new book, a massive, massive book. And email us if you have any questions at rdgable at yahoo.com. There's a lot more after this. Don't go anywhere. Thank you. 
From para-history and the paranormal to the parapolitical and para-occult, you're listening to The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. This is The Secret Teachings. If you'd like to contact the show, email Ryan at rdgable at yahoo.com or find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesecretteachings. You know you can listen to The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday on Ground Zero Radio. I don't need it. Or in the free archive on our website, thesecretteachings.info, or on any radio or podcast player or application. I don't need it. But you can also subscribe to our ad-free archive, now hosted by Aftermath.media. Definitely don't need it. There's the basic and premium options. You get the montages, my digital books, and more. For those of you who already have a Secret Teaching subscription, you can still keep that subscription. Just visit www.thesecretteachings.info or aftermath.media and subscribe today. I need it! If you're interested in all things that include the occult, from witchcraft to voodoo, and from mythology to alchemy, then why not check out the book Occult Arcana? Maybe you want to look at technology, black goo, UFOs, and demonic pacts made in the entertainment industry. Check out the technological elixir. Or if that's not enough, check out Good Philosophy. All three of these books are available in softcover or PDF at www.thesecretteachings.info. That's where you can read reviews, see pictures, and even order yours today. It not only supports The Secret Teachings, but most importantly, it supports you. Hello folks, this is Jordan Maxwell, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. Excellent shows with your host, Ryan Gable. I hope you find it enlightening. listening to the secret teachings radio i'm your host ryan gable we were looking at the work of sir jagadis chander bose and also some recent scientific inquiry into the life of plants the mysterious or secret life of plants there's a really good book actually called the secret life of plants about how plants are very much alive very conscious they make static popping sounds when they are in stress sounds that other little critters might respond to when they need water when they're dying etc things that are not just reactions but a form of sentient reaction and it's not just the plant it's also what comprises the plant. It's also what comprises the soil. It's everything around us. It's nature, it's life, it's God, it's energy. I'm of the opinion that everything, including physical things like this microphone, has a kind of energy and is in one way or another conscious. Now, I'm not saying this sure microphone is a conscious living thing that can speak to me. That's a misconception. I'm saying that 
when I had my old RE20 microphone and I spoke into that thing for like 10 years, I traveled with it all over the country. I moved with it all over the country. Anytime I moved other than my computer and my mixing board, that microphone was the, because it was much smaller, obviously, than a big mixing board. It was the most precious thing I had. I brought it into hotels with me. I always made sure that it was safe when I moved. I kept it in the front seat. That microphone was like an extension of me. And it really is an extension of my voice, quite literally. But when I tried to switch that microphone out for this microphone, it just had this feeling of like it, it did not want to go. It, it, it belongs here. And maybe that's a subconscious thing in me. And it probably is as well. But that microphone has a mind of its own. That microphone has a, has a consciousness, has an energy about it. And it's part of my consciousness. It's an extension of me. I've made a connection with this inanimate object. It's the same thing people say. They have a car that runs forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. They finally decide to get a new car. And when they decide to get that new car and they get rid of the old car, maybe they sell it to somebody they know, the old car just suddenly dies, despite the fact that it had been through everything and it had been beaten up. And even if it wasn't that taken care of, when it loses its owner with this strong connection, it dies. I mean, that's a, that's a real condition in humans and animals. You know, when an owner of, a, of an animal dies, sometimes the animal dies. When an animal dies, maybe the human dies, especially in relationships. You know, husband and wife that have been together for 50, 60 years. I mean, my God, it's literally you die of heartbreak. Now, that's a conscious connection between humans, also between animals. And we can keep going down layers or levels or spheres of consciousness, and we find plants. I'm not saying if your favorite plant dies, you're going to die. But when there is turmoil in a household or turmoil in an environment uh, that is uh, not really harmonious, uh, and it, 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 turmoil can be natural, of course, plants feel pain, and plants feel stress, and plants feel anxiety. And plants feel all these things different than how you feel them. They don't need to go see a plant therapist, but they still feel these things. And this is one of the sounds of what a plant, well, sounds like uh, when it is stressed. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that just kind of sounds like popping bubble wrap. Maybe that's what the scientists did. It's actually the plants emitting a frequency. It's above what humans can hear, so they had to amplify it and, and, and play around with it. I'm not sure how realistic it is. I mean, I'm sure they make sounds. Uh, I'm not sure how artificial the sound construct is, but if you watch, there's a lot of videos online of this. They actually recorded these plants, and then they amplified the, the frequency. Uh, actually, I don't know how that works. They lowered the frequency because humans can only hear it at a certain frequency. The plant frequency is much higher. It's like two or three times as, as high. So maybe they, however, they adjusted it so you can hear that popping sound. Now, 
just that idea though, that idea that plants that plants do this, it means that uh, there is life. And when I say life, I mean God, I mean uh, you know the essence of the universe, uh, spirit, etc. And it is within and without everything. That is, as with the inanimate objects that have a life and have an energy to them, that is probably what we would call, generally speaking, no matter where you look in the world, that is animism. Animism is probably one of the oldest belief systems on planet Earth. It's the attribution of a soul to plants, inanimate objects, and natural phenomena. Everything has a soul. Trees have souls. Plants have souls. Animals have souls. Humans have souls. But you can look at some humans and say, I don't know if they have a soul. You could probably look at some plants and some animals and think, you know what? They might have a soul. I get a real good feeling from this plant or I get a really good feeling from this animal. I want to adopt this animal. I want to bring this plant home. It's probably communicating with you on some deeper level. Now there's science and then there's esoteric science and then there's more esoteric occult philosophical kind of inference about nature. There's a lot of stuff going on here. But animism is the idea. It's also a belief in a supernatural power that organizes and animates the material universe. So for an atheist, for a proponent of the Big Bang, which I don't know why God can't initiate the Big Bang, for a proponent of atheism at the Big Bang, this supernatural power is just coincidence. It's chaos. It's just an accident. It's just out of nowhere. For someone who is more religious, who believes in a creator deity or God anthropomorphized, which is all, all it is. It's just, it's basically the idea of the Big Bang anthropomorphized. Scientists and, and Christians are arguing about the same thing. Uh, they grossly misunderstand each other. But they believe, creationists believe, a supernatural power created and organized and animated the entire universe. How is that any different than what scientists believe? Scientists believe the same thing. And theirs is based on the same premise of Christians and others that believe that God created the universe. It's the same principle. In fact, if you read the Bible, and if you read the Quran, there is a lot of geometry and a lot of science and a lot of things in those texts which describe the creation of the world in a way that you would think is kind of like a, if you've read them, you you probably tend to think, because I tend to think this myself, I just assume other people think think this, hope they think it. It's almost like a primitive form of scientific uh, text or scientific inquiry uh, and, and trying to explain complex scientific things in a way that everybody can understand them, in a way that is uh, something that can be passed down from generation to generation in story form. Uh, the God was able to create the, the heaven and earth and, and, and the world in seven days and he created this and created that, created light, created the mountains and the valleys and the animals and the plants. I mean, that could just as well be a description of the natural evolutionary process. And scientists who say, oh, it's the Big Bang, it's just random. Well, couldn't chaos and, and randomness uh, in the grand scheme of things actually be uh, precise decision-making by a higher authority or higher intelligence. To us, it's chaos because it's beyond our comprehension. 
to the creator, to the architect, it's actually a very uh, intelligent, designed, organized, and animated thing that has been created. I just think that scientists and religious-minded people who believe what they believe based on the same word, faith, scientists don't know about the origins of the universe. They take guesses, they do investigations, they infer things, imply things, assume things, and ultimately they believe what they believe based on faith. People that are religious, they might laugh or mock science to some degree, but they also believe what they believe based on faith. Just like scientists tend to mock religion, but they believe what they believe based on the same kind of faith. Now, tonight's show is not about creation and evolution. But I'm trying to get to a deeper point here. The deeper point is the idea of animism, the idea of a belief in supernatural powers that organize and animate the material, material universe, and how our ancestors and how we today see this world that is organized and we see this world that is animated. And I think there are two really fantastic examples that exemplify this in a way that you may not have thought about before. I want to give you two words. Those two words are your pillow. Your pillow. Think about your pillow, the one that you sleep on at night. When you go lay down on that pillow, you go to sleep and you have hopefully a good night's sleep. Lay down on that pillow, hopefully you have a, night's, a good night's sleep or at least maybe you can lay there and meditate. You get some relaxation. You use that pillow to watch a movie on the couch. That pillow is animated with some form of life. You might think that's quite silly, but think about what the pillow represents. The pillow is a launch pad. It is a gateway to the dream world. When you lay on that pillow, you go to sleep and you dream. Think about what I don't want to say primitive, but a more primitive people might have thought. They didn't have pillows like we have pillows, but they had different types of pillows, whether they were laying on things that were stuffed into cloth, like could have been feathers, it could have been hay, it could have been whatever. But they go to sleep and they have these dreams and wake up having had this experience. And the only thing that changed is that they laid on this, this piece of material. So it becomes almost like an oracle. It becomes like a pad, a launch pad. Uh, you land your head on it, and you're transported to this dream state, this dream world. The other thing that is like the pillow, two more words, the toilet. Might sound funny and comical, but the toilet. The toilet is a portal to another world. It's a place where we are vulnerable. It's a place where we transition. It's a place where we are vulnerable with other people. Even though you don't know those other people in the bathroom with you, you might be you know, nervous to you know, really go to the bathroom, give people a courtesy cough or, or whatever. Uh, hope people make some noise you know, if you're in the bathroom alone. You walk into the bathroom. You don't know if anybody's in there. You hope someone makes a noise. Uh, the courtesy cough or something. But the toilet, just like the pillow, it is a gateway or it is a portal. And to people that 
again, I don't want to say primitive because by no means were our ancestors primitive in the way that we, we make the assumption that they were. This was supernatural. This was otherworldly. This didn't really make sense in relationship to the everyday life of the average person. You do very mundane, but very you know spiritual things, very spiritual practices. Uh, maybe not to the people doing them, but you know agriculture or sewing or you know cleaning things or whatever it was that you had to do, taking care of a farm or whatever. Those are very mundane things, hard work, and then you lay down to rest and you get transported to this dream world. I mean, imagine the things that our ancestors dreamed, like literally dreamed not figuratively. Because think of the things that you dream. I mean, I don't know what you dream. I dream all kinds of weird things. Sometimes it's futuristic. Sometimes it's in the past. I had a dream last night that was just a feeling. Like the dream was me. I did, not like I was laying there, but it was just like a, an empty space. You know, like a nothingness, like a up uh, an abyss, but not a negative abyss like hell or something like that, or like more like a purgatory. It was just the floating of of consciousness or whatever you want to call it. I, that's what I felt anyway, and I just had this like feeling, this positive feeling. I, I don't know really what it was, but I just had that. I've never I've never had a dream like that, and there it's timeless. There's I can't say well that was this time period or that time period, that was in the past, that was in the future, it was the setting of the dream, like a story. It was just a feeling of being. And that that was the dream state I was in last night. Uh, other times I dream of, when I was a kid, I was terrified of nuclear bombs. And uh, I had dreams about nuclear weapons detonating all the time, all the time. I'd be standing outside, like my grandma's, uh, porch or something when I was a kid I'd have the I'd have like a dream about that and then I would see my grandma lived right across the bridge where Tampa Bay is and driving into St. Petersburg Florida and I just remember seeing the big flash of light and the mushroom cloud and feeling the heat and waking up I had that dream like literally I had that dream almost every night for for almost all all of my uh, memorable childhood I don't know what it meant just scared of atomic weapons but I, I you know I have dreams today that sometimes are in the in the future, perceptually, in the past. And then I've never had a dream like this last night. I just literally dreamed that I was I was just free-floating, unbound-by-time energy. And it was a really, it's a hard feeling to describe. It's like nothingness and everythingness at the same time. And you know what transported me there? A form of meditation called going to sleep. And of course... Going to sleep, that's kind of like a euphemism we use for death. You know, our final bed, the death bed, laying down on the pillow, going to sleep one more time. We do that when we die. We disconnect from the body. We transition to wherever or whatever that is, if there is a wherever or whatever. Or are wherever or whatever is really those words are inadequate for explaining what the whenever or whatever is, wherever or whatever. Uh, and then when we go to sleep at night and then we wake up the next morning, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you go to sleep and you never wake up. How do you know exactly what that feeling is like? 
Hopefully, if I never wake up when I go to sleep, I have the feeling I had last night in my dream because that was a really nice feeling. And it wasn't a physical feeling. It was like a, it was just like an intuitive feeling of like just constant intuition and energy. And that's not what inspired tonight's show. That just, just came to my, my mind, actually, while I'm explaining this. It's a really good example, I thought. So you go to sleep at night, and it's like, it's like dying every single night. You don't know if you're, you you're going to wake up. That pillow transports you to another place. The toilet is, <laughs> is, a, is a portal. Uh, it is a, a gateway to uh, another place. And especially to, let's say again, I don't, I don't really want to say primitive people, but it's another example of how primitive people might see these things as very supernatural uh, portals, gateways, etc. cetera, uh, because they're places of vulnerability, places of transition. That's what you're doing when you go to sleep. You're transitioning. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, you're ascending in, in, in a way when you go to sleep. So, you know, I, I mean, my God, I, I'm so fascinated with this stuff. If you just, if you said, hey, Ryan, we want you to, give a one-hour presentation at this event. I would just do a one-hour presentation on, 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 a, on a pillow. And I think that would be fascinating. I do a, I'll do a one-hour presentation for you on the toilet. Not while I'm sitting on the toilet, of course, but like <laughs> on the toilet. Uh, I just, because these things are, these things are very occult and esoteric. And, you know, you, like, for example, you watch, you watch a movie like Harry Potter or you read the stories. I've never, I've only read the first and second book. I've read through the third book twice and I just can't get through it. I, I'm not a big fiction guy, although I did read Dude recently and I did just start Jurassic Park, but which, you know, Michael Crichton's a great author. So I thought I would finally, finally, finally read that book. Uh, but I don't really like fiction. So I've never really read Harry Potter, but I have seen the movies. And of what I've seen in the movies, you know, when I'm reading uh, the books that I read, more occult, esoteric books, sometimes I come across things that I think, I've seen that somewhere. Where, where, where did I see that? Where did I hear that before? And then I realize, oh, it was Harry Potter or it was Lord of the Rings or something like that. For example, I came across a really fascinating thing recently. Uh, and I want to tell you the reason that this interests me is because like when I watched Harry Potter for the first time, I immediately thought, I was like, okay, the woman that wrote this is either an occultist or she had occultists help her with the with the story. And I'm not talking about just the movie, but the book too, because I know a lot of things in the movie obviously are different than the book, but a lot of things are similar to the book. A lot of the same characters, of course, you know, Sirius Black, etc. Where do those names come from? They're not just random. Sirius Black, that's not a random name. Uh, the ability to, sh to shape shift and walk through portals and uh, you know, goblins and all these different characters and, 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 and attributes these characters have. And, you know, Voldemort is is like Sauron. It's this rep, this representation of evil, this manifestation of evil, evil associated with the snake, right? What's his snake's name? Like Nikita or something? I apologize to the Harry Potter people. I don't know all about Harry Potter, but it's a serpentine. It's always the serpent. It's always the dragon. It's always the evil. And then there's the you know, the, the, the protagonists that have to, it's the same storyline in, in everything that's popular. So you, you get that idea. Uh, and so when I'm reading things, like I just read this book, really, really great book, fascinating book. It's a more scholarly book. Uh, and it is about uh, yokai. The yokai are kind of like Japanese spirits, 
shapeshifters, phantoms, specters, sprites, fairies, elementals, demons, aliens, monsters, although they have different names for these things like Oni or Bakemono or Obake, things like that. And uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, really interesting stuff about the yokai that I'm going to share with you in the next hour because that's what we're going to uh, sort of transition the show to tonight. But, but I want to build it up first because there's a lot of really interesting things. So Harry Potter, for example, uh, has this really obscure yokai in it that, you know, again, when I first saw Harry Potter, I was like, J.K. Rowling, this, this woman is like very well-versed in the occult. It's not an accident, the stuff that she put in her books. It's not an, It's just like uh, Florence Welsh, Florence of the Machine. The, the, I, when I first heard her music, I thought, this woman's a witch. And I didn't mean that in a derogatory way. And then I found out she actually did study witchcraft. Like she, uh, I think her mom was like a professor. So she was well-versed on those things. And she incorporated that positively into her music. So when you look at Harry Potter, uh, one of the comical, comic relief, kind of sort of a driving character in one or two of the movies is this character named Moaning Myrtle. And she's in the bathroom stall, right? And she just is in there and she cries and someone threw a book at her head. You know, that was, what was that? Tom Riddle's Diary or something. Well, this is actually a yokai in Japan. It's called the Toire no Hanako-san. Toire no Hanako-san is, the, is the, basically the girl who haunts the school bathroom. So I'm reading this. I went camping this weekend and I'm finishing this book it's called the, uh, it's about the yokai. It's called the Book of Yokai. Uh, yokai is Y-O-K-A-I, the Book of Yokai, by Michael Dylan Foster. And he talks about, he doesn't reference Harry Potter or anything. He, the first part's about yokai and what they are. The second part is like a bestiary. It's about all the, these different kind of uh, spirits and monsters from uh, the water or from the land or from the countryside or from the city or from inside the home. He kind of broke it down like that. It's kind of like an encyclopedia. I just finished it. And uh, I was reading this this weekend. And I actually got up uh, Monday morning. because We camped Sunday night. I got up Monday morning. I took a walk and I'm, I'm like kind of groggy. I barely slept uh, at all because my allergies were so bad. My nose was so stuffed. So I'm kind of groggy and I'm walking down the, the walking down the path and I'm reading. I know I read and walk. That's weird for some people, but I'm reading and I, I'm, I'm reading kind of, kind of into it, but kind of like out of it at the same time. And I read about the Toire no Hanako-san and I'm like, isn't that Moaning Myrtle from Harry Potter? And I, you know, I actually, I went back, I always, I highlight my books. So I go back and I, you know, kind of take notes on things so I can make sure that I, I remember uh, these, you know, these uh, important things that I want to remember if I want to incorporate them into a book or something for myself, you know, notes for a show like this show. And uh, there's a, another yokai, a creature character uh, called Tsuchigumo. And Tsuchigumo is this large spider-like thing. And it has these little tiny spiders that follow it. And when I read that, Tsuchigumo, in the same yokai book, and when I read that, Tsuchigumo in the same... Uh, <laughs> In the, in the same uh, yokai book, I was like, isn't that the same thing they used in Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter? Uh, Tolkien called it Shalob, and Rowling called it Aragog, and the Japanese call it Tsuchigumo. <laughs> I mean, to, like, I, I laugh because I am so utterly fascinated with these things 
and how they relate to, uh, you know, our everyday life. You know, you like Harry Potter, you like Lord of the Rings, you like it, whatever, whatever it is that you like. And a lot of people don't realize that the people that wrote these things, they were great writers and they were, you know, they made good characters and dialogue maybe or whatever it is that you liked about the, sh- the movies or the books, etc. And it's like this is something that is universal to humans. It doesn't matter if it's an isolated Japan or it's the mythology of Greece or Scandinavian countries, which is what inspired Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. Now, this stuff is everywhere. And when we come back from break, I'm going to share with you uh, uh, some stuff about the yokai because the yokai are not really commonly uh, known characters unless you're into manga and anime and Studio Ghibli, of course. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. A lot more after this. I'll show you how the whole plant story we talked about earlier sort of relates to this through animism. And that's really what the yokai is. It's an expression. uh, Let's call it an expression of nature. Uh, It is a metaphor for nature. Like certain yokai or spirits that, you know, make noise in your house in the middle of the night. They're not real spirits. You know, it could be a tree outside or something, but we anthropomorphize it so we can understand it. Once we can anthropomorphize it, identify it and understand it, it's not so scary anymore. That's what mythology and science, and they are the same thing in a lot of ways. That's what they're all about. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings. Again, thesecretteachings.info. Please go to the website, grab a copy of one of my books, resubscribe to the show, or go to aftermath.media and subscribe for the first time. There's a lot more after this. Don't go anywhere. From parahistory and the paranormal to the parapolitical and para-occult, you're listening to The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Want to hear more of The Secret Teachings radio show? Search for the show on any radio or podcast player or find links and a free archive at thesecretteachings.info. You could listen to this. And again, you know, people say David has no evidence. David has no evidence. I hate this channel. Or you could listen to The Secret Teachings with myself, Ryan Gable, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. Join us to explore the outer limits of history, symbolism, parapolitics, and more. We'll explore a little bit of everything, but don't take my word for it. I'm kind of like you. I'm the last of a dying breed, a generalist. That's The Secret Teachings, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. If you enjoy The Secret Teachings and want to hold years of Ryan's research in your hands, visit the website and grab a physical and digital copy of Ryan's books. Occult Arcana will introduce you to sacred myths, folklore, magic, and alchemy. The technological elixir will take you from transhumanism and AI to black goo and UFOs. Food philosophy will change your mind about what we call food, germ theory, and geoengineering. And remember, shipping is always included. Some restrictions exist for international. Visit thesecretteachings.info. Hi, it's David Childress from Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. You know you can listen to The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday on Ground Zero Radio. I don't need it. Or in the free archive on our website, thesecretteachings.info, or on any radio or podcast player or application. I don't need it. But you can also subscribe to our ad-free archive, now hosted by Aftermath.media. Definitely don't need it. There's the basic and premium option. You get the montages, my digital books, and more. For those of you who already have 
have a Secret Teaching subscription, you can still keep that subscription. Just visit www.thesecretteachings.info or aftermath.media and subscribe today. I need it! Listening to the Secret Teachings Radio. I'm your host, Ryan Gable. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, this afternoon, this morning, whenever and wherever you are listening around the world. This is White Bat Audio. What we play for most of our bumpers here on the Secret Teachings, Monday through Friday, right after Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis on GroundZero.radio. If you don't know who Clyde Lewis is in Ground Zero, especially if you like this show, you should know who Clyde is. You're missing something special. And uh, having the secret teachings on right after Ground Zero is, I know, special to a lot of people. It's obviously very special to me. Um, I feel uh, incredibly blessed and lucky and happy to be where I am. And uh, I think we bring you here on Ground Zero Radio, some of the most unique content uh, that you you can't really find elsewhere. Uh, the parapolitics, the parahistory, the essence of the secret teachings, the essence of the mysteries of nature and life, etc. I think we have something very special here, and I'm so glad to be on Ground Zero Radio, and I'm so glad to have you tuned in tonight, if you're just listening to the show in the free archive or you found us on Deezer or whatever the platform is, you should check out the main show Monday through Friday. Check out Clyde's show as well. Uh, You get 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Pacific, and then you get the secret teachings right after that 10 to midnight. So you get five hours of, well, really good raw radio, uh, ground zero dot radio, or Clyde has all the affiliates. You can listen in a lot of... uh, a lot of places across the country on terrestrial. So the secret teachings is at the core of everything I do. And it's not just mainly P. Hall's book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. The secret teachings to me, if I had to summarize it in like an elevator pitch, is just the, the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of nature, why we do the things we do, why we call the things we call certain things or names, why we call them that. If you watch Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or you read the books, in both stories, there are these big monstrous spiders with legions of smaller spiders that follow them and and chase the protagonists. If you watch The Mandalorian, there's an example of this too, this big ice spider and uh, chases uh, what the little frog lady. Um, Mandalorian was good, by the way, if you want my opinion on that. It was it was good, and then it got weird, and I, I feel like the third season's just, ugh, 
kind of awful. But uh, there's a big ice spider in that in that show as well. You can find that that image everywhere. Anytime, anytime you see that, whether it's in Lord of the Rings, where Tolkien calls it Shalob, sounds very Hebrew, Shalob, Shalom, uh, or Rawling, J.K. Rawling calls it Aragog. It's the same archetype. It's the same story essentially being told, uh, the same myth. There's actually a really good... I do not have a copy, so if anybody wants to be super kind to me and uh, give me a copy of this, the the big, like, faux leather-bound um, encyclopedia, Tolkien encyclopedia, where it's like an, an analysis of every part of Lord of the Rings and where the myth came from. Uh, I really appreciate that. I'm all, I'll, I think I'll eventually buy that thing. It's I don't need any more books. So I got, I'm getting rid of books, but I, I really want that book. And that's one of those things where... You know, if you just watch those movies or you, you know, you read the books, a lot of people don't realize or think about where those stories come from. And I mean, one of the places you wouldn't expect those stories to come from is, uh, you know, I, I would say most of us are familiar with like European lore, like European myth. We know about like the Celtic uh, uh, mythologies, uh, the Druids, we know about the the Green Man, we know about, you know, a lot of African mythology, we Egyptian and other places. We know about the Nordic mythology, Odin. We know about a lot of other, maybe maybe, maybe Eastern European. I mean, some, some of you might be thinking, well, I know a lot about mythology around the world. And, and maybe you do, but the average person doesn't. Most of our, most of our mythology is very European. Uh, it's, it's kind of uh, very uh, Greek and Roman centric. Nothing wrong with that, of course. So you have to make a study of other mythologies, whether you're studying Native American mythologies or you're studying Middle Eastern mythologies or you're studying South or Central American mythologies or Asian mythologies and particularly uh, mythologies of, you know, maybe small islands like Hawaii has, and not just the island of Hawaii, but all the other islands has a really uh, very, very unique, uh, and I, I say strange, not in a negative way, but a very strange um, uh, kind of mythology that is super unique to those islands. Uh, and if you grew up with that mythology, you might look at Greek mythology and find it strange. Uh, so when you study mythology and folklore and legend and, and things around the world, you start to see parallels. And the reason for that is, I'm sorry to tell you, it's not aliens. That's not the reason for it. Although maybe there's some argument for that in some cases. It's not aliens. It's probably a combination of lost civilization mixed with humans are seeing the same things in nature. When you get a mysterious you know, scratch on your body, where did that come from? Did you scratch yourself at night or were you just taking a walk? And you start to feel a weird itch or pain on your leg, and you look down, you got this big scratch across it. Did you just not realize you walked into a plant and it scratched you? That happened to me on a trail recently within the last couple of months. Uh, I did realize the plant was scratching me because it was pretty sharp, but I've walked into things not realizing it before. You know, some things can be super subtle. Uh, or is there a, a monster? Or is there a, a, a spirit or a demon that is responsible for that mark that's left on your body? Obviously, 
and and I mean I mean I I believe in the supernatural, but that doesn't mean I think that there are demons running around, you know, scratching people while they're walking on a trail. However, the the idea there is it's a mysterious scratch, right, or a mysterious cut or mysterious bruise. And there's definitely an explanation of how you got it. You walked into something, you know, you scratch yourself in the middle of the night. Uh, you know, your brain is cycling through uh, uh, consciousness and information. And it finally had time to to get to the you know, through the nervous system, to get to that feeling on your leg or that feeling in your arm. And you're like, oh, look, I have a big scratch there. That happened to me recently. I had a huge scratch from like my, like where my bicep area is down to like my elbow. I didn't feel it. Didn't even know it was there. Somebody pointed it out and I said, oh, damn, there's a huge scratch there. It was like eight inches long and it was fresh, like it had just happened. I was sitting still the whole this is the whole time. I don't think I touched or bumped into anything. I was on the couch. No idea how that appeared. So there's a, there's a, a spirit for that in Japan. It's called the Kamai Tachi. Kamai Tachi is a sickle weasel. Is what it translates to. It's Kama, K-A-M-A-I-E. So Kama, Kamai Tachi. Kamai Tachi. And it's said to be responsible for that very thing. That mark on your arm. Very strange. Uh, it's something that you find uh, these kinds of characters in every single culture. Uh, in Japan, they call them yokai, which can be translated in a lot of different ways. Spirits. Phantoms, specters, sprites, fairies, elementals, shapeshifters, demons, aliens, monsters, you name it. It kind of incorporates all of that under under one title, including the kami, which are kind of like this, not the communists, but the kami, K-A-M-I, which are like the, the spirits, um, very big to Shintoism. And uh, part of the idea of animism, which is what we were talking about earlier. So that brings us back. I said I was going to sort of recap what this this plant story I was talking about earlier. Uh, these scientists, these researchers, once again, uh, you don't need the, de- need the details. I played the sound for you earlier. Uh, we're able to demonstrate that plants make a popping static sound, like kind of like bubble wrap, when they are in need of water. And they also make similar sounds when they're stressed from predators or when they're stressed from, you know, maybe, you know, predators like as in insects. Uh, or they're stepped on, or whatever the case might be. Uh, they feel, they have energy, they have an awareness, they have consciousness, and it borderlines on animal consciousness. And in some ways, it borderlines on human consciousness. And human consciousness, likewise, borderlines on that of demigod consciousness, or for some people, animal consciousness, and for some people, plant consciousness. I mean, the elements make up the minerals, which make up the plants, which make up the animals, which make up the humans, which make up consciousness, and so so on and so forth, up the hierarchy of uh, awareness, consciousness, spirit, whatever, again, you uh, choose to call it. I, I tend to speak in generalities about that because you could call it whatever, and I don't want people coming away from the show saying, this is what you have to call it, this is what Ryan called it. You can call it whatever you want to call it, spirit, consciousness, spheres, disks, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But plants have this feeling, just like water has a memory, just like fire has this almost fluid, conscious uh, movement to it, uh, just like air is something that can really invigorate you, you breathe in, it's like prana or chi, 
So there's life force there in the air. And of course, in the earth, you take your shoes off to ground, you pick up the soil and feel it. There's all that life in the soil, all that energy. It's in the elements, it's in the minerals, it's in the plants, it's in the animals, it's in the humans. It is everything. It is in and outside of everything. And there's so much life everywhere. Now, our ancestors understood this, probably not all of them. There were probably a lot of really stupid, uh, uh, dumb people that lived in the past and uh, people that just didn't care about anything uh, and people that uh, probably, well, definitely, certainly, historically speaking, uh, prevent us today from accessing uh, context or accessing uh, important information because of stupidity, because of ego or uh, you know war or whatever a lot of a lot of things art history have been destroyed and a lot of people think of the library of alexandria as a good example of that so obviously our ancestors are barbaric as we are but not all people today are barbaric a lot of people today are good people most people are good people or they want to do the right thing and uh, we all have this proclivity to sort of get pulled into the gravitational effect of the things that we don't understand of the mystery uh, of the darkness, uh, when lines are blurred and things are not so distinctly set out by our senses so that we can understand them. We're drawn to that mystery. We're drawn to that, that, uh, that force. So just like this little character, the, the sickle weasel, as it's called, uh, there is a, which causes those little mysterious scratches, there's another character uh, who's a yokai that is probably the best example for explaining what I want to really uh, break down here in this hour. So kind of like the kamaitachi, which is, again, the sickle weasel, weasel said to be responsible for those mysterious cuts on your body. There's, there's another character, or I guess like a series of characters, uh, but they're called yanari. And a Yanari is, in essence, a yokai for poltergeist activity. Uh, you know, poltergeist like uh, ghosts or things being moved around in your house. Different than demonic possession or infestation. There's like a, there's a difference in categorization and, cat and cataloging these things. Poltergeist activity, you know, things get moved or you hear strange sounds, your house is haunted. And, you know, some might say a haunted house is similar to an, a, a demonically infested house, but, you know, the demonic energy is a lot different than a ghostly energy or whatever, you know, you choose to call it. So th there's a yokai called Yanari, Yanari, and Yanari means sounding house. And it's a very particular interest here because the Yanari spirit, it's not really depicted very often, but... Uh, historically, there are depictions of it. Just kind of, they kind of look like little goblins or like little, um, what we, I guess, more like gnomes or something like that. They're very mischievous. And they wander around your house or outside your house and they make noise. They bang on the side of your house with a hammer. They make noise. They scratch the side of the house. Uh, or these are Japanese uh, things. They're Japanese yokai spirits. So they're kind of like... Um, a little different in terms of maybe how they manifested there. 
uh, in Japan. I don't know if you can hear that. I just got like a huge fighter jet just flew over. If you can hear that in the back of the microphone. It was really, really loud and powerful. Uh, anyway, so in, in, in Japan, you know, you have like these paper doors on, on the homes traditionally. Uh, the sh- I think they're called shoji. Uh, kind of like a paper door, wood sliding door. They can remove them and move them around. And uh, the, the, they actually themselves are, they are a yokai, uh, manifested as a yokai. So the yonari would like bang on the, on the door uh, or scratch at the paper. And, you know, the, the, the idea here of anthropomorphizing and deifying these events, you can say it's superstitious. It's not a monster. It's just the wind. Okay, but when you're at sleep, when you're asleep at night, or when I should say you're in a half asleep state, you're really tired. Your senses kind of start to shut down. I mean, your body's still subconsciously very aware. You hear that strange sound, you hop right up, you're awake, and then you can fall back asleep. Your body's still doing its job. You're still alert. You're still aware. You're still trying to make sure your body's trying to make sure that you're safe in this super vulnerable state, right? So you hear some noises. And yeah, maybe it's the wind. Maybe it's not the wind. The point is, though, when you can identify it with something, you can tell yourself, okay, that is the wind or that is, you know, the the creaking stair or the, the sink in the kitchen dripping or it's old pipes creaking. And that's usually what it is. It's not haunted or demonic infestation. It's usually just the house, uh, something moving in the house. But the house has an energy to it, right? Just like your car, just like your phone, your personal items, they have an energy. They have your energy. And the Yanari or sounding house is something that can be used to identify all those house sounds under one title. So you don't have to think, well, that's the sink, that's the pipes, that's the floor, that's this, that's that, that's the wind, that's this, that's that, that's whatever. You just call it Yanari. And they're, you know, that Yanari don't really harm you. They just make a lot of noise and kind of bother you. They're not going to come into your room and kidnap you or something like that. So you can just say, well, those are Yanari. And once you can identify those strange sounds, and you can say they're Yanari, well, it's a lot easier to go to sleep. You know, and it's it's certainly not something, I'm not saying that I lay in bed at night and think there's, oh, these are just spirits making noises. That's not what I'm saying. But to people in the past, especially, uh, particularly without you know mass media and technology, trying to identify the things that they were experiencing, they used terms and created terms that uh, they understood, and it helped them to understand what those mysterious things were. That I mean, that alone is a scientific process. I've I've always argued this that what we call superstition and mythology and demons and spirits and monsters. And these are just, it's just, these are just ways that we describe things or people. Like if someone's acting really angry and aggressive and violent, they could be said to be possessed by a demon of wrath, for example. Uh, or, you know, if you're really angry and aggressive and kind of violent and kind of aloof, you might be an Oni. O-N-I, an Oni, which is uh, kind of like a monster, goblin, lumbering giant type of a character, type of a yokai. Uh, I mean, there, there are plenty of you that might actually know a lot more about yokai than I do because you probably, you know, if, if you do, you probably read anime or uh, manga 
Uh, I mean, I've wa- I love Studio Ghibli. All those movies are great. I watched Pompoco recently. If you watch that kind of stuff, if you read that kind of stuff, you might probably, you actually might know more than I do about these things. Uh, but Yanari is the house sound, and it's just everything bottled up in one identification. And it's not really superstitious. Uh, the only thing that's superstitious about Yanari is, is the name itself, because superstition just means anything left over from the past that had some association with, you know, confusion or trying to understand something or misunderstanding. So a Yanari, you know, a yokai, a spirit, a demon, whatever, they are superstitious things, but they are also very real things. Because if the sound of something knocking on the side of your house or rattling the, the paper doors in Japan is a, is a monster, well, once you can identify it, you can do things to stop it. You can do things to, to pr- protect yourself from that Yanari or whatever it is. And that's what the, uh, that's what the yokai are. Uh, little things like the kamaitachi that cuts you randomly. Once you can identify what it is, you can protect against it. Uh, the, there's another uh, yokai similar to kamaitachi. It's kamikiri. Kamikiri, or, which is kami and then kiri, it re- re- relates to cutting and, and or chopping uh, is uh, is basically a spirit kamikiri that cuts off a person's hair randomly. So if you're walking, you end up missing some of your hair. I guess this has happened in the past. Um, or maybe you're walking and you hear some thunder and you hear some lightning. Well, there's a character for that too, the thunder beast known as Raiju. Raiju strikes the ground when lightning strikes or strikes a tree. Uh, the, the marks left on the tree are said to be caused by Raiju, the beast. Uh, these are just ways that ancient people, whether they were in Japan or in North America, used to describe and to define and to categorize and to catalog the natural world. Uh, and, you know, in Japan, the kitsune, the fox, is a, and, and also the inari, which is the yokai of um, uh, uh, fertility and rice crops in particular, uh, the kitsune and the, and the inari, are really powerful deities that are regional because, you know, rice uh, farming is so important in Japan and has always been important there. So one of the the patron or chief yokai is a guardian of, of rice patties. Uh, and the fox is uh, has a relationship with Inari. Uh, you can see fox statues, like stone statues, at Inari shrines all throughout Japan, or you could look them up online if you choose uh kitsune are this this is something that you think of foxes you might not think of this but unless you play pokemon i guess kitsune are known for making fire by striking their tail on the ground and there's there's a couple of different things about the the fox spirit the yokai which is really interesting that actually relates to ufos uh the kitsune no yomi uh yomeiri uh, you pronounce that kitsune no yo me iri, which is the fox wedding. And the fox wedding is not really a, a wedding like, you know, getting married to somebody. Uh, it's a, a series of lights that you see in the distance. You know, the foxes are beating their tails and fire is, is being produced. You kind of see these balls of light in the distance. So it's a natural phenomenon that's been deified. And these weddings, these fox weddings, these kitsune no Yomeiri are very similar to fairy lights that you see in the forest or UFOs. In other words, 
in Europe or in the US, we might call them UFOs. In Europe in particular, they call them fairy lights. In Japan, they call them kitsune no yomeiri, fox wedding. It, it, it's all the same thing. No matter where you live in the world, no matter what your history is, your culture, humans were seeing the same thing and just given different names to the things that they saw. Giving different names to the things that uh, made sense to them, that were you know culturally appropriate, uh, that were regionally appropriate, etc. A really great example of this is in relation to the fox, because if you've watched like Palm Poco or something like that, you know foxes uh, are shapeshifters. Uh, foxes can be employed by families generationally to either possess or do the bidding, kind of like a spirit uh, who's conjured to do some bidding for you. A little less, let's say, heavy on the dark magic kind of a thing uh, in terms of the kitsune. But uh, foxes could be employed to go take possession of somebody or to harass somebody. Kind of like, you know, you're, they could be seen as like a familiar, uh, but more, more so uh, they're like you know, spirits that are summoned to go do your work for you. Uh, in 1885, there's a German doctor named Erwin von Balls. And Erwin von Balls said that foxes, I mean, I don't know if he believed this, but he wrote a paper on it. He said that foxes, since they could transform and shapeshift, were kind of like, you know, humans that could transform into wolves or into, you know, the werewolf. And, you know, it's called lycanthropy the ability of a human to turn into a wolf. But there's also a word that is used to describe a fox turning into a human, alopacanthropy. Alopacanthropy is when a, a fox turns into a human or a human turns into a fox. If you've read anything about Japanese culture, tradition, mythology, etc., you'll know that the, 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 what, like a, a real fox wedding is when a fox turns itself into a beautiful woman and marries a human man. It's when they're discovered that they're actually an animal that they that they go back to to that world. But this is also really similar to the fairy stories in uh, in Europe, where the fairies come and they bear children with humans. And in some cases, the you know mothers have said that they have had their child taken to the fairy world, and on occasion they're allowed to visit them. It's the same thing with UFO abductions. Women that say they've been abducted, that they've been made pregnant, that they've had the baby taken, and in subsequent abductions, they're able to interact with their baby. And they know that it's part human and part something else. This is something that you see, again, in stories of fairies. It's in stories of UFOs. It's also in stories because we're looking at Japanese myth tonight and Japanese yokai tonight. It's also in stories in Japan where instead of turning into a, a wolf uh, or turning into, a, you know, a, a wolf turning into a human, it's a, a fox, a kitsune, yokai, that turns into a human and they can bear children with humans. Aleppocanthropy, kind of like lycanthropy with wolves. So I want you to think about that. As we go to break here, the final break, I want you to think about the. I want you to think about the nature of these phenomena, how UFOs, fairies, and these mysterious yokai that actually aren't that mysterious when you study them from Japan, how they all have the this the same thing in common. You know, uh, whether it's a shaman who has children in the 
to the other world, uh, or it's a UFO abduction, or fairies, or it's a fox turning into a human and having children with, with, with humans. It's all coming from the same place. The supernatural, the, the metaphysical, whatever you want to call it. Very fascinating. There's a lot more about this when we come back from break here on The Secret Teachings. I hope that you're enjoying the show. I'm Ryan Gable. Don't go anywhere. One more segment after this. From parahistory and the paranormal to the parapolitical and para-occult, you're listening to The Secret Teachings on Ground Zero Radio. Want to hear more of The Secret Teachings radio show? Search for the show on any radio or podcast player or find links and a free archive at thesecretteachings.info. You could listen to this. And again, you know, people say David has no evidence. David has no evidence. I hate this channel. Or you could listen to The Secret Teachings with myself, Ryan Gable, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. Join us to explore the outer limits of history, symbolism, parapolitics, and more. We'll explore a little bit of everything, but don't take my word for it. I'm kind of like you. I'm the last of a dying breed, a generalist. That's The Secret Teachings, five nights a week on Ground Zero Radio. If you enjoy The Secret Teachings and want to hold years of Ryan's research in your hands, visit the website and grab a physical and digital copy of Ryan's books. Occult Arcana will introduce you to sacred myths, folklore, magic, and alchemy. The technological elixir will take you from transhumanism and AI to black goo and UFOs. Food philosophy will change your mind about what we call food, germ theory, and geoengineering. And remember, shipping is always included. Some restrictions exist for international. Visit thesecretteachings.info. Hi, it's David Childress from Ancient Aliens, and you're listening to The Secret Teachings. You know you can listen to The Secret Teachings Monday through Friday on Ground Zero Radio. I don't need it. Or in the free archive on our website, thesecretteachings.info, or on any radio or podcast player or application. I don't need it. But you can also subscribe to our ad-free archive, now hosted by Aftermath.media. Definitely don't need it. There's the basic and premium option. You get the montages, my digital books, and more. For those of you who already have a Secret Teaching subscription, you can still keep that subscription. Just visit www.thesecretteachings.info or aftermath.media and subscribe today. I need it! This is The Secret Teachings Radio. I'm your host, Ryan Gable. One of the things I tried to do in my book, Occult Arcana, which is a massive compilation of esoteric material, it has recently been updated as well. If you would like to get a uh, new copy of the book uh, digitally, I can send you the digital copy if you already have the physical book. I don't expect you to buy it again, of course. I'll send you the digital copy for free, the update. The, uh, the new edition has, oh, I'd say, I guess depending on what other edition you have, I've had like three major editions, probably like 30, 40 new pages, new pictures, uh, com- some completely new sections, uh, new uh, endings to the book on occult Japan, which is what we're investigating tonight. And uh, a lot of what we're talking about tonight is actually in my book, Occult Arcana. It's from the last chapter of the book called Occult Japan, uh, the newest edition that is 
Uh, well, it's basically available now. If you order it, you can uh, get the newest edition. We're talking about the yokai, which are kind of like spirits, kind of like sprites, fairies, aliens, demons, monsters, stuff like that. They all kind of kind of go together. Uh, but they also have different classifications. And uh, some of them are real animals, uh, like Tanuki, for example. Tanuki are real animals. They're you know the main characters of Pompoko, if you've ever seen Pompoko. And the Tanuki are very mischievous. Uh, they're, they're basically just raccoons or badgers. So they're real animals. And they are um, also kind of spiritified into being something that's supernatural. Now, a lot of what we've discussed on The Secret Teachings tonight and a lot of what we discuss, I even discuss it, I think, in my, my book, The Technological Elixir. It's another massive, massive book. Uh, all both of those books available on the website, thesecretteachings.info. Those uh, those concepts I think that I addressed a lot in the technological elixir too is the idea, and I've said this so many times over and over and over again. It's one of the things that really just fascinates me how similar mythology is when you read it, when you understand the metaphors and the symbols. Mythology is to what we call mainstream science. It is a way in which to categorize and catalog the natural environment, the natural world. Why are there sounds in my house at night? We can look at pipes or creaking uh, you know, foundations, or we can look at windows that aren't properly sealed or installed, and the wind blows and they make noise. And When you're in a vulnerable state and your senses are partially subdued, and your body is in a position, because of the vulnerability, a position of, of high alertness as you fall asleep. And it's still alert, even if you're not conscious of it. It's still alert while you're asleep, of course. So some people are heavier sleepers than others, though. But it's still alert because you're in such a vulnerable state. So what exactly is making these noises? Well, to people in the olden days, they called them, and there's, I'm sure, a, a large number of names for them. Uh, but one of them... Uh, one of the yokai, famous yokai, is Yanari. Yanari, these little goblin-like, golem-like uh, creatures. Uh, maybe golem's not the right word. And a lot of people say golem, they think like gnomes. But I, I guess when I think golem, I think like very tall, you know, Jewish uh, monster kind of a thing. More so like gnomes, we'll say gnomes. So they're more like gnomes. And they, they make noise in the house and they move things around and they make noise uh, outside your house as well. But once you can identify what that sound is, it's a leaking sink in the kitchen or it's you know creaking foundation or whatever, then you can go back to sleep. You're like, oh, it's just the house settling, right? That's what people say. It's the house settling or it's the wind blowing or that sweater on the chair isn't a monster. It's just uh, you know the moonlight <laughs> reflecting off of it. It creates this shadow. It looks like a monster. It's none of those things though. And m most of us, if you're if you're an adult, you know you don't really get scared by these things anymore, probably. Maybe you do. Some people tell me my show is frightening. I don't really intend for it to be frightening, but I don't think these things are uh, scary because I think that just like the, with the Yanari, they help us to identify what otherwise might be scary. So the identifications are not scary, but the things that we're using to identify the things that are scary, um, the, 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 these are, well, I should say that these are positive things or these are, 
helpful things. Uh, the, the scary things are what we're trying to figure out. What's that sound in the middle of the night, for example? But when we look at the idea that mythology and science are very similar, there's some really great examples of this in yokai lore. Uh, and within yokai lore, you're going to find Yanari, which cause every day, or I should say every night, household disturbances. You're also going to find yokai that are basically representations or expressions of, of nature, like just pure expressions of nature. Uh, and you're going to find yokai that are real things, like real animals. Uh, a great example of that is the, you know, like Pompoko, the Tanuki. Uh, a great example of, a, of, of just a raw spirit of something is the tree spirit or Kodama, the tree spirit. Uh, or there's particular tree spirits called Kijimuna. Kijimuna are kind of like tricksters, like a trickster yokai. Uh, and of course, you know, the sounds of uh, the sounds of the forest, the Yamaviko. Yama means mountain, uh, should say sounds of the mountains, but sounds of the forest, the mountains. Uh, Yamabiko means mountain echo. And uh, the Yamabiko is this little tiny character that kind of looks like a partially like a monkey. And it it's basically giving back uh, the, the, the vibration. So it's like an echo. Uh, it's reverberating sound through the forest. There's a name for that, Yamabiko, or it's the spirit of the echo, or uh, I think the kanji for it is spirit of the valley reverberation. So it might seem like a stupid, funny little character, but it's a very complex thing, and it's also very scientific, and it's also very, you know, let's call it, for lack of a better word, kind of mystical or spiritual. It's the spirit of an echo. It's both spirit and, well, I guess mundaneness, uh, science, call it whatever you want to call it. So there's a lot of different kinds of yokai. And uh, there are some really famous yokai. Uh, I'd say uh, the kappa is one of the most famous yokai. Kappa is a yokai that is a wat more like a water deity. Uh, it's known for drowning horses and cattle by pulling them unsuspectingly into the water. In a very dark sense, the kappa are also uh, fond of drowning little children. Uh, despite this, this reality, despite this like graphic background, uh, the kappa is really no more than a warning for children to be really careful when they're swimming in bodies of water, rivers, streams. So the kappa is a really great example of something that seems qu quite ridiculous and it seems obviously unreal. There aren't real kappa walking around, unless I guess you imagine that to be the case and you manifest it. But it's more of a warning. You tell kids you don't go down to the water and swim by yourself, or you have to be very careful because the kappa will get you. It's like all the, you know, those classical, famous German fairy tales, right? Uh, where they're kind of, kind of spooky and scary and terrify the children. But the reason for that is because you want, you know, in those days, you got it's different. You don't have cell phones and all that. So kids go out and do things and play and explore. And you got to you have these legends of these creatures, these monsters that could get you if you're not careful. And that's really what the kappa is, at least to kids. 
it's a warning for children to be really careful when they go into water because the kappa might get them. In other words, that is to say, they might drown. The kappa also have a playful side, and uh, they're said to love cucumbers. In fact, the sushi roll, kapamaki, cucumber roll, is named in honor of the kappa. Of course, cucumbers, they probably like cucumbers because cucumbers have uh, so much water, and they are a water deity or a water spirit or a water sprite. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a, uh, a different kind of a water spirit or water sprite than, say, you might be thinking of like, you know, you have the four elementals. You have salamanders, which are fire. You have sliffs, which are air. You have gnomes, which are earth. And you have un- undines or undines. I think they're also called naiads, not naids, uh, which are water elementals. And a little bit different. The water elemental is the element of water itself. The kappa and other water spirits are more so like, well, again, they're warnings for children and for people bringing animals across water so they don't drown and lose, you know, lose their horse or whatever, cattle, whatever it is. Uh, but they're also kind of like the spiritual manifestations of the water. The same way I said earlier, you have minerals and elementals that make up the bottom of the hierarchy of consciousness. The elements make the minerals, make the plants, make the animals, make the humans, make the demigods, make the gods. It's all part of a cyclical thing. So I guess you could say like the the elemental of water, the undin, it's, it's the spirit of water, but then there's also the minerals and the animals and the plants that come out of it, if you will, and that would be like the kappa. But it's also just basically a warning to be very careful when you're in the water. Uh, and in different parts of Japan, there are different versions of the kappa. There's the kawa, which is river, kawa, kawataro. The kawataro is a uh, kappa, basically. It just is another name for it. And if you're interested in these these uh, yokai, these spirits, the kappa and the, and the kawataro have slightly different looks to them uh, the, the, uh, it's this amphibious yokai. It's, it's like a, it's almost like a turtle type thing. It's got like a shell. In it. It's almost like a really, if you look at the images of it, it kind of looks like a really thin emaciated, uh, ninja turtle. <laughs> it's kind of the, the only way I can think to describe it with one of those like friar haircuts, the monk haircuts where they cut the hair on the top of their head. But that's actually on the kappa. That's actually a bowl uh, that water is in, and the water gives it its powers. And if you, if the water spills out of it, it's actually said if you get challenged to, they, they like sumo wrestling, so if you get challenged to a sumo wrestling match by a kappa, uh, you bow to it. And as you bow to it in respect, it bows back, and it spills the water, and it loses its incredible supernatural strength. Uh, that's, a tr- that's a common thing that you find th- all throughout the world, uh, even in the Bible. Uh, Samson has his power because of his hair, right? And the sun has its power because of its solar corona. And, uh, you know, you find, I think it's even even the oni, the oni, which is like a Japanese demon. The oni even has, uh, you know, the horns on the oni's head. And there are female oni, so it's not just him or her, or not just him or his, but her as well. There are female oni, they have horns, and the horns are what give them their power. If you get rid of the horns, get rid of Samson's hair, get rid of the water or the kappa's head, 
then they lose that, that supernatural power. So that's the kappa. It's a warning for kids to not go into the, not go into the water. Uh, and if they do, be super, super careful because the kappa could get you. There's another super famous yokai called Tengu. Tengu is a very kind of weird uh, mixture. Of, it's what a lot of yokai are. They're like a weird mixture of other animals. The Tengu is kind of like a, a bird and a bunch of other animals mixed together. Uh, from what I understand, reading scholarly works on yokai, there isn't really a good background understanding of where the Tengu came from. I mean, you see it, I'm sure, in all kinds of anime and manga and all kinds of movies and stuff like that, if you watch that kind of stuff. But the Tengu are known to, just like the Kappa, target children, kidnapping them from their parents. But this isn't really like an evil demon hunting kids down and killing them. It's just a warning for kids to be careful when they go into the wilderness because the Tengu is a bird perched on a tree or it's in the mountains in the forest. And uh, it's uh, just a warning of kids not to go too far, not to get, not to get lost. Uh, which this is something we could definitely talk about in the secret teachings. You know the work of David Pollady, right? David, he does this, you know, the work about the missing 411, the missing kids. And you watch his documentaries, you might think he's cherry-picking information. There's some stories that are certainly questionable in general uh, about missing kids. But my goodness, my goodness, the the stories of kids that literally, they just vanish in the blink of an eye. And, and it, you cannot find them. And then they, some of them have been gone for weeks and then they reappear close to where, sometimes close to where they disappeared, other times way far away from where they disappeared. They've been gone for days, no scratches, barely dirty, sometimes exposed to the elements, the rain, etc. Uh, there was a kid on the east coast of the United States who disappeared out of, a, out of a gated backyard. There were other kids there. He disappeared. I, I, I think there was like a birthday party or something. And I, I can't remember exactly where this was. Was it North Carolina or something? I think it was in the Carolinas. This kid disappeared. And then they went, I mean, he was a gated backyard. They, they, and I think it was his grandma's house. So they didn't suspect the grandma did something to him. They, the police went out. Or I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it was a grandma. I could be wrong about this. This is off the top of my head. But the point is, this kid disappeared. This is all very real. You could look it up. The kid disappeared. They could. They went and searched for him. They had uh, lines go through the woods behind the house and search for this kid. They couldn't find him. It rained torrentially, freezing temperatures, like things that would put even the toughest human into a, a state of like just shock, probably. And they found this kid after days and days of missing, of him being missing. And this kid says he was taken care of by a bear. And when they found him, he was tangled in like his tentacle, like vine, like plant, which is even weirder because at the time, Slender Man was so big. And this kid, when, when he was found, he said he wanted to eat pizza and go watch Netflix, which, you know, we've talked about the power and the influence of these streaming services and how they can manifest things in reality. Slenderman was really big around this time. Slenderman is his domain is in the woods. He's got these tentacle-like things, right? And he and he also has you know uh, no face, which is also a yokai. Nope, 
Perabo. No Perabo. No Perabo. No Perabo is a monster uh, that has no facial features, no eyes, no nose, no mouth, no kind of expression. Its egg is kind of like, uh, or its face, excuse me, it's, it's egg. Its face is kind of like an egg, uh, just a white, smooth thing. That's a nope, pe, P-E, pe, should, should try to pronounce this again. Nope, pe, rabo, with emphasis on the O. Nope, rabo is basically a Japanese slender man from a long time ago. But more to the missing children, uh, reappearing in places where they they disappeared from days later or close to where they disappeared from or far away. This kid was eventually found and he was, you know, he was fine. But this is something that happened in Japan in probably pretty ancient times. And they call this in Japan Kamikakushi. Kamikakushi is spiriting away. You ever seen the movie Spirited Away? Spiriting away. It's basically uh, a David Pauly documentary. <laughs> documentary. It's kids that just go missing. They end up in, in you know in different weird places. So the Takapa can do that, or the Tengu can do that. And uh, in both cases, uh, you just have warnings for children to be careful in the water. You have warnings for children to be careful in the forest. You're not careful in the water, the kappa might get you. If you're not careful in the forest, the tengu might get you. There's also the ningyo. We actually did a show called Mermaid Oil a couple of weeks ago. We talked about the ningyo. It's a famous Japanese cryptid creature that dwells in water. It's more of a cryptid creature than a manifestation of water. It's not like an undine or a kappa. It's more of like a like an actual cryptid creature, uh, kind of like a monster, but I think Monster is really the, the wrong word to apply to it. Uh, it's a combination of human and fish. Uh, a lot of people throughout history have actually made, some of them have been pretty famous, even internationally. They've like they've made uh, ningyo. They've taken fish and monkeys and they've sewn them together. Uh, but it's the name itself means half human, half fish, what most would call a mermaid. And uh, the, the, the character, the creature itself, is said to be a, uh, uh, an omen if you see one, or particularly if you eat one, if you, if you eat the, the meat. It's a sign and an omen and a, a beneficial health practice that provides you with longevity, uh, a lot of other health perks and benefits. And it seems like such a weird thing, like you're going to eat this cryptid creature and you're going to get... You're going to get healthier from, from eating it. That kind of seems weird. And then you realize, well, you know, like much of humans, human civilization, you know, we, we rely on the oceans for a lot of things, especially if you're an island nation like Japan or a series of islands. You rely on ocean waters. You rely on the fat of the sea. And seafood, generally speaking, generally speaking, um, much better than red meat for you. Seafood has a lot of really beneficial health, um, uh, let's just health, a lot of beneficial health benefits. I don't know if that's what I'm trying to say, but a lot of, a lot of beneficial health qualities. So it would make sense that eating something like a ningyo, not just seafood, but something so mystical, something so magical from the ocean, uh, something that kind of blends these worlds together, something that's supernatural. Not only is it coming from the ocean, it's probably pretty healthy and life-sustaining, but it's also supernatural. And because it's supernatural, it has even more 
of that life-sustaining quality. And that's what the Ningyo really is. Uh, there are some depictions of the Ningyo that ha- it has like a horn on its head, which is really interesting because the horn is something that if you read like European lore about unicorns, we've done shows on unicorns too here on The Secret Teachings. Uh, uh, in fact, I actually have a section in Occult Arcane in my book, which you can find on the website. It's, uh, I think it's in the, the holiday section. I just redid the cover, by the way. I did redid the cover, and I actually redid the subtitle of the book um, to include some of all the updated stuff. So it's totally redone cover, and a lot of the text, there's a lot of stuff that's added to it. But the, um, the section on holidays, there's a sec- section on the, the unicorn. It's, it's such a big book, I honestly don't know where everything is. So it's, I think it's in the, the holiday section toward the end. It's where the, 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 the S-bots and the Sabots are, so it's toward the end of the, the holiday section. But there's a section on unicorn. It's in the. It's. I don't know why I'm explaining this. It's in the the table of contents. So the, there's a section on the unicorn. The unicorn I explained in Occult Arcana is this creature that its horn. You know, uh, outside of the the history of where that idea comes from of a unicorn, the narwhal or a, a rhinoceros, which is just hair that kind of solidifies into a horn like thing, or some. I think it's like Asian rhinoceroses or something. But the the horn is known as this protective thing, if you grind up a unicorn horn and you, and you drink it, or you drink out of it, if you hollow it out and drink out of it, it's supposed to protect against poison and uh, evil influences. So just like the Ningyo, it's the horn of that creature uh, that provides one with longevity. And you, you, probably, you probably could discern from this, I, I don't want to say it is an absolute thing, it's just my interpretation, that the general health benefits of seafood, especially for an ocean-faring people, uh, that means that if you eat something from the sea, it's healthy, it's beneficial, it's life-giving and life-sustaining. But if it's a supernatural creature, it's even more so those things. And the same way with the unicorn, uh, you know, the unicorn is in the forest and it's magical and mysterious. And if you eat that unicorn or eat the horn of the unicorn, you're not supposed to eat the meat of the unicorn because it's, you know, it's like Voldemort. Voldemort was eating the unicorn in Harry Potter. It's demonic because it's such a pure creature. But if you use the horn it can actually prevent disease or heal disease and kind of the same idea the forest gives us nourishment the forest gives us food and wood and fire and water the food gives us a lot of things and the the uh, the forest excuse me gives us a lot of things and uh the it's getting late i'm, I'm getting tired tonight uh i haven't slept well recently because of my nose is just so stuffed from all the pollen in the air out here but the forest is uh, has has a uh, a yokai that embodies its essence. It's called Yamamba. Uh, Yamamba is uh, an example of like nature's power uh, and mother nature. So it's it's female. Uh, the word Yamamba means mountain old woman. Uh, Yama is mountain, so Yamamba is mountain woman, and she has proclivity for kidnapping young children from local villages, there's kind of a Hansel and Gretel thing going on with, with this uh, Yamamba character. So she kidnaps young women and young children. If you ever seen the movie The Witch, that witch in the woods is kind of like Yamamba. And she could change her form, and she, kid, she steals the baby in that movie. It's a really good movie. You've never seen The Witch. Uh, so she, in the stories, she insists on entering the home 
uh, of, of, of children whose parents are gone. And I think it's probably a metaphor for nature attempting to reclaim her own innocence in response to the encroachment of man. It's my interpretation. Uh, but your mama can also provide good luck as long as she's appeased. So if appeased, your mama can provide you with uh, same kind of things a ningyo can, longevity, as long as you don't venture too far into her woods. Uh, in other words, it's from the mountains and the valleys that we acquire food and water and wood and fire, etc. By balancing what we take with what we give and paying our respects, we can appease nature and live harmoniously within its fertile womb. That's the Yamamba. That's what it means. Uh, people may, might have actually seen real Yamambas, you know, real uh, witches of the woods. But generally speaking, it's kind of like a warning. Uh, the kappa and the, you know, is, and the tengu are warnings for kids not to go swimming, not to go too far into the woods. Yamamba is also another warning, but more so to society in general, to not take too much and to give back. And it's, it's almost like um, all these yokai, uh, they're, I mean, I, I guess let's, let's put it this way. Like when you think of like more Western monsters, a lot of them seem really frivolous, like they're just creations out of nothing. They're, they're not. If you study a lot of Western mythology as well, you're going to find that there's a lot of deep meaning to them. Uh, but when you study way more foreign mythologies to us here in the West, it's easy to set aside you know, these preconceived judgments because we've, we've not known about some of these monsters or creatures for, you know, for our whole lives. So it's easier to see how some of these creatures like a, a Yamamba might be a warning. Like it wants, the Yamamba wants to get children when they're alone. But maybe it's just trying to reclaim its innocence and it's trying to take back what, is, what, it, what belongs to it. Don't venture too far into its woods. If you don't do that, you pay your respects. It actually provides you with the things that you need. It provides you with luck and abundance as long as you don't <laughs> encroach on where it lives. So this is uh, like an ecological uh, an environmental message. Uh, there's also the Nurikabe. The Nurikabes are supposedly just this random wall that you bump into. You're walking down the street, you just bump into a wall, you can't go anywhere. Uh, it's depicted as an actual wall, some depictions. But it's more so like when your body is so tired and your mind needs to rest, you just hit a wall. We say that. We go to work too much. We can't work anymore. We're just like, I've just hit a wall. I got to take a break. Uh, that's what is embodied in the yokai. And there's so much more, so much more yokai. Um, as I learn more about yokai, I'll, of course, share more stuff like that with you. Uh, Occult Japan, I have two sections on Occult Japan in my book, Occult Arcana. You can get a copy at thesecretteachings.info. I'm Ryan Gable. This is The Secret Teachings, and I really appreciate you staying tuned for tonight's broadcast. Monday through Friday, Ground Zero Radio, right after Clyde Lewis and Ground Zero. If by some chance you don't know about the secret teachings, you just tuned in or you just heard the show for the first time tonight, every night, right after Ground Zero, the secret teachings is on groundzero.radio. You can also listen on any radio or podcast player. We get paid when you listen for free. So please listen. Please download the show. That's how we make our money. And of course, if you'd like to subscribe to the ad-free archive so you don't have to listen to those advertisements that pay us, please go to aftermath.media or renew your subscription at thesecretteachings.info. 
Email rdgable at yahoo.com or tstradio, tstradio at protonmail.com. Stay safe, stay informed, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you on the next broadcast.